Mac Power Users, episode 724, Catching Up with Micah Sargent. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hi, gang. Sparky here, a little under the weather today, so please bear with the sound of my voice. You've got the cool, you know, deep, scratchy yeah. jazz singer voice. Yeah, I mean, that. for people of a certain age, you'll remember a pop singer named Charday. Today, I'm doing my Charday impression. Okay, there you go. Probably probably not recognized. Do you guys know who Charday is? No, no idea. I was trying to Google it quietly in the background. <laughs> S-A-D-E. That's the trick. S-A-D-E. But anyway, yeah, that's me today. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're going to try to do our best to 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 get you through this. Um a little housekeeping before we get to our, our wonderful guest. Uh I wanted to share a link to a talk I gave about Apple Notes. So we did our Apple Notes episode about a month ago and I was asked by this Mac user group in Texas to come speak to them over Zoom. And so I recorded that, talked about Apple Notes for about an hour. And I was really happy with how it came out. A lot of it came from the the episode, but then kind of went into more detail. And it was the first time I've used the new feature in Keynote where you can bring in like live video into your slides. It used to be such a pain to record these things. Like you have your slides being recorded and you have your video somewhere else and you were like stitching them together later. It was kind of a pain. And uh, now it's pretty great. Um, It was a little buggy. I did like a thumbs up accidentally and then my video froze and I had to restart it. But, you know, it it was mostly fine. So if you want a lot more about Apple Notes or you're just curious about the last time I got a haircut, it's been a little while. uh, That link is in the show notes and uh, hopefully, hopefully you will enjoy it. Did you get a haircut just for the presentation? No, I haven't had a haircut uh, since the podcast-a-thon. So it's been a a minute. Okay. I I always want to look my best for the podcast-a-thon. And then it's like downhill for the rest of the year. And then look again, look nice again for the the next podcast-a-thon. Today on More Power Users, which is the longer ad-free version of the show that our members get, you can learn more at relay.fm slash mpu slash join. We're going to be talking about sort of this wild story this week with Apple Watch and patents and like, if it's not resolved by the time you hear this, you can't actually buy a new Apple Watch from Apple right now. It's very strange. Uh, we're going to get into that because I've been following that pretty closely, and it's um, it's just wild. It's a very strange story, but uh, we will get to that uh, after the the main show. It reminds me of many of the shenanigans I saw in my old days as a lawyer. I feel like it's got those those flavors to it. Oh yeah, it's like it's brinksmanship. Yeah. It's yeah. two companies playing chicken with the Biden administration, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we, we will we will get to that. Um, but I want to introduce our very special guest. Welcome to the show and happy birthday, Micah. Oh, thanks so much, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. Uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation and uh I'm looking forward to learning when you are planning on getting a haircut again. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Uh, could be any day. Could be. Once a year, whether he needs it or not. That's, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you're very kind to join us on your birthday as we record this. So uh, it's always good to catch up with you. Uh, 
we're going to have a bunch of links in the show notes where people can find you and your work. And, and we will get to your work in a little while because you are you're a super busy person. Like you're just a human being that pops up all over the place on the internet. <laughs> but first, it's been a little while since you've been on the show. And uh, I would love to hear about the Apple gear you're using because you've got you've got quite a list here. So maybe let's start with the Mac. Yeah, so as far as the Mac goes, I am currently using an M1 Max Mac Studio. This is the one from 2022. Mm -hmm. Um, It's got just 32 gigs of RAM, but it's different because it's all part of the same package and one terabyte of storage. Uh, And I've paired that with a studio display. And I remember getting this thing uh, on day dot, and I was so pleased to have this Mac Studio. I had originally ordered the uh, studio display with the uh, Visa mount and ended up at the last minute deciding to switch it to the standard one so that I could get it on day one as well, um, mostly for the sake of being able to review it. But uh, yeah, I, it is the machine I use at home for all sorts of podcasting and other other stuff that I need to do. Um, but I would say my, I mean, do, do we want to talk about the Mac Studio first? Or do you want me to mention the other thing? Because the other thing is my baby. I need to talk about this RAM first. Okay. okay. You, you raised the question. And I hear this from listeners all the time. You know, they're going in to buy a new Mac and they're like, well, you know, 32 gig is a standard and I'm thinking about paying the extra 100 or 200 bucks. It's usually, it's not that much to bump up the RAM, but they ask me, should I do it or not? And I can tell you, I went through the research when I bought my Mac studio and I did not upgrade the RAM. I got 32 gigs as well. And I have never, I mean, I can answer my question. I've never really seen a performance problem with this computer um, maybe the kind of work I do, do does not hit that, you know, I don't deal with extremely large images and stuff like that, but, but what has been your experience yeah. of getting 32 versus 64 in your RAM? So one thing that I always tell folks when they're talking about this is if you've only got the money to, uh, splurge on one thing on top of getting this machine, get more storage, uh, more internal storage, that is the the thing that I think that uh, will make a difference when it comes to even whenever we're talking about things that traditionally we would attribute to RAM. So if you're doing video editing and stuff like that, if it's there on the device itself and you're able to edit the video from there, it makes all the difference versus even using something like Thunderbolt, then you might start to see some, some slowdowns. I have had no issues. I will say I don't do a lot of uh, AI, local AI processing or a lot of, um, you know, rendering 3D uh, objects or anything like that. But I do do some video editing. I do some audio editing. Uh, I use Photoshop quite a, quite frequently. And I have had no issues with just the 32 gigs of RAM. So yeah, if you can upgrade both, go for that. But if you've only got the money to do one, I really think that it's worth getting more storage uh, rather than spending it on the RAM. Of course, it depends. <laughs> and that's funny because years ago, the advice was just the opposite. Always right. so get as much RAM as you can and you can always add storage later. But you know the, the, the rules of the game have changed a bit. Absolutely. Yeah. And with it all sort of encapsulated, I think that really does make a difference. And <clears throat> it's it's more before it was like, 
the the speed of using something that was plugged in was good enough that you would not notice a difference versus if it was part of the system. And now, like you're saying, it's kind of the reverse. It's because of how uh, how fast things are if they are all integrated, then it's not worth having that external storage over having the internal storage if you can swing it. And yeah, so that, that's kind of where the, the Mac Studio is. I, by the way, I know a lot of people not big on the studio display. Um, I think that the initial reviews of that, of course, the webcam, yes, totally get it. I don't use the built-in webcam. Um, but I think a lot of that was maybe uh, the, the the fact that there were so many third-party options that had all of these gamer features with uh, these super fast refresh rates and all of this. I wanted an all-in-one display that worked very well with my Mac, and I knew that was going to be the studio display, mm -hmm. and that has remained true to this day. Uh, yes, in its initial run, um, there were times where you'd have to unplug it and plug it back in to sort of restart it. <laughs> it's fine. Not great. Totally fine. <laughs> yeah, not great. Uh, but the firmware updates that have come since then have really improved it. I've not had yeah. any issues with audio or anything like that since uh, those those firmware updates came out. So I've been very pleased with it um, as, as an all-in-one. And in fact, uh, just the other day on one of the shows that I do, someone had called in and asked if they should, what display they should get. And their situation was a unique situation where, you know, the person benefited from having, again, this sort of Apple-blessed display, given that it comes from the company itself, and everything that it included, wanted the speakers, wanted to just to have a built-in webcam, microphone, that kind of thing. And so uh, they called back a couple of weeks later, and they it was a gift for a wife, and the wife was incredibly happy mm -hmm. uh, with the studio display. So I was happy to hear that. Yeah, I've been, I've been really happy with mine. I went from an XDR down to the studio display. Well, first oh. down to two studio displays and now just one plus a laptop. And Downsizing. Yeah, yeah, just smaller and smaller as we go. Uh, and I, I really like it. Like, yes, I could have better speakers or a better webcam, but the studio display kind of brings some of the good stuff from the iMac lifestyle, like the all-in-one. And it does just work really well. Like I have the whole thing running through a CalDigit Thunderbolt dock, so one cable to my laptop, and it's it's been great. I've been very happy with mine. Nice. I mean, but do, do people not like the studio display? It feels to me like the complaint isn't that it's bad. It's just that it's expensive. I mean, it's a lot of money for what you get. That, that. It's a lot of money for what you get. Yeah, that is, yeah. you're right. That is the the common complaint. And it's a fair complaint that it is, excuse me, quite pricey. I think. In in some ways, you're paying for, again, that convenience of having that all-in-one display. And perhaps I would feel differently if I was purchasing the display myself as opposed to it being, you know, something expensed through the company. Um, so I know that that does play a role. But yeah, from what I have heard and, and of course, from my own experience, uh, it is great. I mean, I spent $1,000 on the Thunderbolt display. And used that for years yeah. uh, with the same, I was equally as happy with that. So I, I find these Apple-made displays to be worth it for the integrations that they offer. 
Yeah. And when we've talked to so many people on the show that thought, well, I'm going to save three or $400 and I'm going to get like the competitor one and it's like cheap plastic and they end up returning it. I, I feel like it's just, it is just the buy one, buy once, cry once kind of philosophy of Apple, Apple gear. And uh, if you want a good monitor, I think it's a good monitor, although it does hurt a little when you buy it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> buy once, cry once. I like that. That's good. That's good. Uh, but you also have what, I think as a lot of people's favorite Mac right oh now, or maybe in a long time, is the M2 MacBook Air. Yes, my M2 MacBook Air is my favorite little machine. I I could just have that, and quite possibly, I would even you know if, if someone sat me down and said, "Okay, we're we're making a deal here," and you know, it's it's those those uh, viral posts where. Uh, only one gets to stay, three got to go kind of thing. I would even consider giving up my iPhone to keep my MacBook Air. Uh, That's how much I love this little machine. It's so lightweight. It is so zippy quick. I mean, some of the things that I do on, I'm able to do on the MacBook Air uh, that, you know, I thought I would need a Mac Studio to be able to do. It has been very impressive. And I've just got the 16 gigs of RAM uh, option with it as well, because Originally, I thought it was just going to be, oh, this is the device that I take into work and I use when I'm on the set and I use at my desk. And then when I come home, I can upgrade to the Mac studio and go sit down and do work there. And for the most part, that is how I use it. But I'll tote around that MacBook Air with me in my house all over the place doing all sorts of stuff just because it's such a great device. It's it's the perfect weight uh, for for me, I think it's a perfect thickness. I don't need uh, the extra screen real estate for it. Uh, it really has become the place where I feel comfortable using things like spaces. Um, I just, I think it's a magnificent machine that is uh, mind boggling in its in its design and how well it works. I, I just think it's great. Were you tempted at all when they came out with the big screen version? I was not because I have been. The Mac I have used the longest uh, across, or I guess should say Mac form I've used the longest has always been the 15-inch MacBook Pro. Mm -hmm. That was the way, I mean, I would use it uh, in school and then at home, I would put it next to my desk, plug in the Thunderbolt and the Thunderbolt display. So I'd use it in clamshell mode. And then later, my MacBook Pro was in clamshell mode at my desk. That's what I used to podcast on. Uh, So I knew the life of being a 15-inch MacBook Pro toter. And when I got the Mac Studio and that MacBook Air came out, I said, I will gladly give, I will I will return this MacBook Pro uh, to go downsize to the MacBook Air. Um, I have no desire to run back uh, to the, the larger screen for for it i it's just it fits in my bag so nicely and i, I just love it <laughs> what, what about window management though because you're going from a 27 inch screen to a 13 inch screen and um does that require you like and this is a nerdy thing but you're a mac power user so you know welcome to the party baby um but you know what how do you deal like with your standard productivity apps on 13 inch versus 27 inch do you have a different strategy yeah, I do have to think about them differently. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, when I mean, that's where spaces uh, really come into play on the I don't use spaces at all on the Mac Studio. In fact, 
on top of the Mac Studios uh, studio display that I have that I'm looking at right in front of me, I have one 27-inch Dell monitor to the right and one 27-inch Dell monitor to the left. And, or no, sorry, these are just 24 inches. They're um, they're from years ago. But I have so much screen real estate, and so that almost it's 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 a it's a lesson in extremes, and it really helps me to kind of think about them differently. I can spread out and put things all over wherever on this screen, but when I'm on my MacBook Air, that is the place where I will use Spaces. I even when I'm using Spaces. Um, I don't tend to do full screen apps. So I'll have a main space that has, you know, uh, my whatever Safari tends to be the, the window that's most important when I'm at work because uh, it'll have the Google Sheets document in it. And then the second screen will be all of the places where people are chatting with me. So the live chat that we have, which is Discord, uh, as well as Slack, where we can get in touch with each other. And then sometimes I'll have a third win or a third space open that just has the miscellaneous stuff that I might need. I think that in some ways I am um, spoiled that I don't have a lot of extra stuff that I need to do while I'm doing a show uh, for my job at Twit because we've got a team that handles all of that. I think it would be a little bit different. I would probably have to figure out a different system if I also had to make sure that I had my audio recording app open somewhere and that, you know, whatever other buttons I might need to be pressing in the background were also available. So yeah, I just, um, I do see them as two different types of, of interactions and I make use of the screen management options and the window management options that macOS has built in, except for stage manager. Don't talk to me about stage manager. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I feel. Uh, Good. So I feel to you. <laughs> how often are you updating your Macs? I, I feel like in this early Apple Sil- Silicon area era, maybe some people are updating sooner than they would otherwise, right? Leaving an Intel machine behind uh, maybe a little bit sooner. But what is sort of your cadence for this? That's a good question. Um, my cadence, as it stands, has largely been uh, informed by work uh, because that's how I've gotten these machines. Um, and so that there hasn't been a need necessarily for any of these devices for me to make an upgrade with them. I think um, if I had wanted to, when the the new round of MacBook Air, the, the you know the 15 inch, if I had wanted to go to that one, then I could have. But yeah, I don't. I mean, I'm still running the the M1 Max, um, and I don't see any need. Have not run into any uh, thing that's gotten in my way uh, that that has kept me from you know doing what I need to do to even inspire me to get an upgrade. Uh, I, I do think, yes, folks maybe are doing it more often. The, the trade-in value is really great. And so there may be a reason for you to do so. But I mean, even uh, my my pal and uh, the founder of, of Twit, Leo, um, when he upgraded to the latest MacBook Pro, he got a machine that's just ridiculously specced out. And you know, even he, after getting it, admitted that there was not really any need for him to have anything near the machine that he has and that he was just fine with the ones that he had. There's something, I, you know, I, I know it's a little bit um, 
flowery to say so, but there is something really magical about this Apple Silicon. It really, I think it has uh, staying power. All right, I, I want to call it right now. We we we've had some trends on the show over the the you know years we've been on the air, and for a long time we had guests come on every week that would talk to us about how their keyboard stopped working. That was like a, a that was a bad trend, honestly. <laughs> I didn't like that, but now I feel like every time we have a guest on, they talk about how their Mac is great and they have no desire to update it because. That is what it is now. If once you get into the M, once you get into the Apple Silicon, it doesn't matter what level you're at, you're good. You know, yeah. I think that is, and we're hearing it from listeners. I'm hearing it from labs members. I think a lot of people are just very like in in the zone with, with whatever Apple Silicon they get. If you're if you're listening to this, you've got an Intel machine, you, you've got that to look forward to. You know, you're going to yeah. get that big bump. But you know, that's I think it's an increasingly small number of people, especially that listen to Mac Power users. Uh, but the, uh, but I think a lot of people are just like kind of good with these things. And I think that's going to be a trend that we continue to see. Is that going to be bad for Apple in the long run? <laughs> it's well, like, how do we get them to no. upgrade? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, but if people have such a good experience with the hardware that they're like, wow, this thing lasted a long time. I, I think it, it makes long-term successful customers. It probably makes services more important. I think it's a bad sign for, uh, you know, the five gigabytes of data getting any better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think overall, it's probably good. I think yeah. that you know, having a, a product that people love and don't feel the need to upgrade every two years is, I think for a lot of, of customers, is going to create a lot of loyalty. I agree. I mean, that is one thing as a person whose job it is to have people field you questions and you answer them. I've never felt more secure in being able to say quite literally it tends to be that uh macbook air that that small macbook air your you know person whoever your person who's going off to college or your mom or whomever it happens to be is going to love it it's going to be great it's going to last them and i you know it's a machine i use myself tends to be what i say because it is the case uh so yeah there's there's something quite delightful about that too that i don't have this hesitation that maybe i've had in the past or even more so this um I don't feel that it's as necessary to go, okay, you're going to have to spend a lot of money if you want to get something that's going to work quite well for you. Because yes, it's even um, to be clear, the the least expensive Mac is still quite expensive for a lot of folks, but it is nice that I'm not saying, and also throw in an extra $500 here and an extra $300 here if you want to get a machine that's going to last you your four years of college or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I find that quite nice about the Apple Silicon era. Yeah. So you're a two Mac person, but you're also a two <laughs> iPad person. I know you, uh, like, like many, many people, love the iPad mini. But you also yes. have the 12.9 inch iPad Pro. So, wh- how do those interact with each other? Where do those fit in? I, you know, I'm. I look to my left and I see my 12.9 inch iPad Pro sitting there, calling out to me. I very rarely use it. Um, the MacBook Air has taken any place that that iPad Pro has had in my life. Um, it. It's there. It was great when I first got it. Uh, it's the fifth generation uh, 12.9-inch iPad Pro. And, you know, beautiful display. Occasionally, when I'm wanting to do something with the Apple Pencil on a larger screen, I will use it. But 
there's the iPad mini. And it's such a lovely little device that once again, I'm all about apparently uh, being able to tote things around with me. I love how it's easy to to hold in the hand, how I can just, you know, stick it in into a bag real quick. Um, it's big enough that it feels like it's something more than just an iPhone, uh, but it's small enough that it's right between that MacBook Air and that iPhone. And so, yeah, it's just, I mostly use that. I put the 12.9-inch iPad Pro on there because I have it, and I felt like if I didn't, then I was going to feel sad about not mentioning it. But um, I, I don't really use that. So technically, I'm I'm a single iPad person. I just happen to have two of them um, with one mostly just uh, being there for me to charge on occasion. You know, someone at one point um, suggested that Apple create a sort of um, hibernation mode for the iPad. And I think that would be wonderful that you can say, okay, probably not going to be using this iPad for a while. So turn off everything, not low power mode, but turn off everything except for whatever is necessary to kind of keep it running. And then that way when I, I inevitably do need it, I don't open it and go, oh, it's dead again. I need to plug it back in in order to get it working. And now I don't want to use it because I could just grab my iPad mini. <laughs> I'm sorry, iPad. You're not useful enough for me to even mention you on Mac power users. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. That's I didn't want to do that to it. So I used to use it too for, I, I you know what? It's Google's fault. Um, I used to use the 12.9 inch iPad pro as the device um, that I ran iOS today with. It was the, 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 machine that I would have on the table or wherever I happened to be sitting. And it's how I would, you know, look at the show notes and open up documents because it was, it's the show's called iOS today. I wanted to be using iOS in this case, of course, iPad OS, but Google sheets, um, used up so much Ram, I guess that anytime you would switch away from Google sheets to something else, when you switched back to Google sheets, it would have sort of been flushed from the cache. And so you had to re, uh, relaunch the page to get where you needed to be. And when you're doing a show live, you don't really have time for all of that to wait. And so I started using my MacBook Air in its place, and I can't go back. Mm -hmm. So yeah, now that, that iPad Pro just doesn't get much use. Do you think Google's written down somewhere how many hours they spend on iPad development in the last decade? <laughs> They should have that somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that number is more or less than a hundred hours? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's probably not enough. That's what I'll say. Not, not enough time. <laughs> this episode of MPU is brought to you by one password, the tool that I use and trust to manage not only my passwords, but my two factor authentication and even pass keys. Now pass keys are new as of the last year or so. And it's kind of a weird thing. It's really cool when you have it set up because you don't have to worry about a password or other sort of login information that may be difficult to manage because 1Password just takes care of it for you. So if I come across an account that I'm using passkeys with, I'm using 1Password as normal because their tools make it really easy to manage this new era of security. And of course, 1Password works across a wide range of browsers and devices. So I have it on my Mac and my PC and my iPhone and my iPad. Uses Touch ID and Face ID, staying on top of the latest updates from Apple and other platforms. 
This is great because staying secure should not slow you down. One of my favorite features is the ability to create and store banking information. We've all had that instance where we need to send a routing number to somebody and like, where do you even look it up? I don't, I don't have a checkbook laying around, you know? I keep that in one password because I know it's safe and secure uh, and I can copy it out anytime I need to send it to a vendor or an advertiser or something like that at work. And secure notes. So I have some notes that have some pretty critical information that I don't want out there and I can keep it safe and sound encrypted neatly in 1Password. So head on over to onepasswordcom MPU to learn more and to sign up for a free 30-day trial. That link is in the show notes, onepasswordcom MPU. Get a free 30-day trial, and you'll get 20% off when you sign up. Our thanks to 1Password for their support of the show. Micah, you are the uh, quintessential professional podcaster. Uh, You've got uh, shows on Twitch. You do work on Relay with Clockwise. You also show up all over The Incomparable. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the the differences between those. You know, MPU is an audio show. Clockwise is an audio show. But you do a lot of video uh, over at Twit and The Incomparable, Mm -hmm. I think, some of each. And how do you think about those things differently? How do you prep for those things differently? I love this question. It is different. And it's important to kind of, if if you're going to do it, that you're being mindful of it. Um, when you're doing video, you have to consider not just visuals, but the dynamics of the visuals. Uh, unfortunately, when it comes to, I don't even know if it's unfortunate, but it is just a fact that... Uh, if you're going to be doing video and you keep things very static in the video, then a person's attention is going to drift away. Things need to be changing on screen. And so just having two people sitting next to each other or sitting in two different places, but sort of shown next to each other, chatting back and forth, not incredibly dynamic. And so even if you have introduced that video aspect to what you're doing, a lot of times it's not um, enough to keep someone engaged and there needs to be more. So what we do at Twit in particular is we have a person called a technical director um, and their job is to consider those dynamics. We have, uh, so for example, iOS Today, Rosemary Orchard calls in, I call in or I'm in, I'm in the studio in person. And so those are two video feeds And then we have a a computer that's completely devoted to just being an on-screen feed that can go into uh, the video. And then oftentimes, if I'm in the studio, then I'll have multiple angles, an angle where Rosemary is behind me in a television and I'm in front. And so the technical director switches between these. They sometimes go to my single, they go to both of us on screen. But we also, when we're talking about something, a website, uh, an Apple support page, we cut to that. You know, They're scrolling through as we're talking. I mentioned something specific. They kind of zoom in on it. And those dynamics, I think, really make a difference. It makes the video actually matter, which I think is mm. the important thing. You know, just having video on its own, if there's not a reason to have it, I would argue don't. <laughs> um, because we know, uh, this has long been the case, that when it comes to video and audio, someone who is, uh, you know, 
enjoying a piece of media or trying, attempting to enjoy a piece of media, they're more likely to be turned away from that media, turned off by that media if the audio is bad. And the, the video can be the sharpest, most beautiful, most wonderful video. Audio is bad, they are more likely to leave it versus the other way around. If the audio is good, then it's likely they can stick around. They might, you know, again, not pay attention to the video, but if they can hear it and it sounds good, it's it's less uh, taxing for the, the person, especially cognitively taxing. Um, so get the audio right before you even consider adding video. And if you add video, I really do think it should be for a reason. There should be a reason that you want to do video, not just I'm doing video, but that it's to show more, it's to better educate, it's to uh, better entertain, whatever it happens to be. And then with that, I think it's always important. Uh, one thing that we that I really try to do uh, with iOS today is bear in mind that not everyone is able to see what you are talking about. So a lot of the people who enjoy the shows that uh, I do that are video shows they're not listen. They're not watching. They are listening, and so you have to keep that uh, listening audience in mind. Be it because they're just listening to the audio feed, or because they have uh, some sort of disability that doesn't allow them to be able to view it as well. So there's a lot that goes into it, where you've got to have subconscious, or not even subconsciously, but just in the back of your mind, uh, consciously knowing that that is a factor, and that you can't sort of rely on video to. Uh, get you out of something or to, um, you know, be a, a means of, of explaining a thing. You still need to kind of explain it uh, audially, I guess. I even like to find that with audio podcasts. Like when I do shows, we don't run our cameras because if we can see each other, we start explaining to each other with our hands. But the people at home don't see that because it's an audio podcast. And I think it's really important that you always be mindful that mm – -hmm. Even when it's just an audio podcast, video can get in the way. Absolutely. That's, and that's, that's the, the note there for sure. Video can get in the way and it often does. Uh, so don't let it be something that's getting in the way. Let it certainly make whatever you're making better. But if it's not making it better, I don't know that it's necessary. Um, also, physical prep, of course, is involved with video. Uh, one of my favorite days of the week are Wednesdays because that's the day that I do clockwise and I don't have any on-camera shows at work, which means that I don't have to uh, look my best. <laughs> I can just, I could be wearing a robe and come in and sit down and do uh, clockwise in the morning. And that is something that I often do. And it's fine versus there's... so depending on the person and what all they feel they need to do to be in their the the way that they want to be perceived by the world it may require more or less work and i think you have to be mindful of that too um i used to work with someone uh and she specifically did not like the fact that she had to uh do all of her makeup and everything before she went on camera and then and this was something that you know i'm not saying that it's not a situation of, oh, well, why not just do it without doing No, she wanted to do her makeup to be on the show. She felt that she needed to. It was something that she wanted to do, but she also did not like that that was something that ended up being a part of every situation. So yeah, the physical prep that's involved sometimes is uh, is is not fun. 
<laughs> and so I, I always celebrate Wednesdays uh, because I don't have to, to worry about that as much. And then lastly, when it comes to video, uh, I think you have to be mindful that it suddenly means a lot more equipment if you want to make it look good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to have the right camera. Um, you, yeah, you, I mean, you can use the built-in camera on your uh, studio display if you want to with, you know, keeping in mind that it's not going to be the best looking video. You need to have lighting. So suddenly you're adding lighting to your studio. You need to have the right boom arm uh, so that it's, it can still be in the shot, but maybe it's not taking up all of the screen, whatever it happens to be. And then even the right office space. I have to be mindful of how things look behind me when I am, you know, in the studio, it's literally made to be a place where it you sit down and it's, it's good to go. But at home, this office is not just, it's not just constantly ready to roll. So, oh, that's right. I moved a box over into the, uh, into the shot because I was trying to get to something in a closet or whatever. And oh, I've got to put that away before I go. So you've got a lot more equipment and a lot more that you need to be aware of when it comes to how the visuals are set up. Um, for me, I'm actually using last year's iPhone as my camera. Nice. Uh, yeah, I use that with Camo Studio. Um, I, I know that Apple has its own continuity camera, but I was using Camo Studio for a long time before uh, that came out, and it's just rock solid for me, whereas sometimes I've had some issues with continuity camera. And so basically, every year when I upgrade my iPhone, um, I'll take the sort of two years ago iPhone and will uh, send that back you know, for trade-in value. And then the one that's from the year before replaces the replaces it as mm-hmm. my camera that I'm using at home. So um, I have tried a lot of different cameras. One that Twit uh, provided for me that was what we use in the studio, which is like a really old school looking camera that uh, has the little strap on the side that you zoom in and out with. Um, I've used a DSLR. I've used the Opal camera. I've used all sorts of different cameras. And for me, the iPhone and uh, Camo Studio setup has been the best way to do it and make it look good. Um, It's just, it's sharp. It's, uh, yeah, it's quite nice. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot to think about when it comes to video and it's, it can be very involved and uh, quite overwhelming. uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I I think it says something though, that you can giant air quotes, just use an iPhone. I mean, I think people yeah. would be surprised like how many people who do video professionally are either using all iPhone footage or intermixing iPhone footage. Like maybe they have a camera, a traditional camera on a tripod, but then their handheld shots are on a phone. And unless you really are paying attention, you can't tell the difference anymore. It's just astounding. I, I agree. I think it's, the. I mean, I was shocked that I could use the iPhone and be very happy with how it looked and not have to worry about it. And I think a lot of that is also influenced by the fact that by the time the video gets to any sort of live stream that is then streamed out to people, it's compressed and you know there's, yeah. there's all of that that's involved. And so it doesn't need to be super 100% excellently perfect. But yeah, we... Uh, purposely shot our iPhone 15 Pro Max review entirely on an iPhone 15 Pro Max. And the footage was 
delicious. It was gorgeous. Uh, it looked fantastic. And luckily, we have a very talented individual. His name's Anthony Nielsen, who knows how to work with log and you know properly color grade and do all of that magic that I am lost in trying to work with. Um, but I was very impressed with how things looked because uh, he and I both were a little concerned, like, okay, we're going to shoot all of this. We're going to do this, all this work. And then it's going to be like, eh, afterward. And then we started to see it. And it was just jaw-droppingly beautiful. So hmm. yeah, I, I love that the iPhone can be part of a professional production. So you have these wide range of projects. You're uh, at Relay and at Twit, you're covering Apple and iOS. And we're going to talk about HomeKit later on. I know that's kind of been an area of expertise for you over the years. Um, but you you also, like over on The Incomparable, are doing things like hosting uh, D&D games. You did an excellent stream for our St. Jude fundraiser that was just so much fun to watch and be a part of. When you talk to people who are looking to create content online, you know, even as just a, as a side thing is how this started for all of us. What are some things that you talk to those folks about? Yeah. Um, so first I learned this term, there's a wonderful individual. Her name is Mary Jo Foley and she used to host, uh, windows weekly on the twit network. And she is to this day, one of the like premier, uh, Microsoft journalists, that exists. And Mary Jo Foley taught me this term, uh, pantser. And a pantser is not a person who pulls down someone else's pants as a prank. They are instead a person who flies by the seat of their pants. And I've talked before about this. Back in college, I was diagnosed with ADHD. So it's sort of built into me to be a pantser, someone who flies by the seat of their pants. But as time has gone on, and as I have uh, sort of distilled things into what works for me, I have learned and have told others that even if you are a pantser, like I am, there's the stuff that you can fly by the seat of your pants with, but there's also the stuff that you can't and that you have to prepare. And so when it comes to working on these projects, especially these video projects that involve streaming and, and production and everything else, you have to you have to prepare and even if that for you means that you know each day leading up to the the project is a day where you are completely hyper focused on this part of the project or this part of the project preparation is necessary and you need to make sure that you're not trying to do it all last minute because if you do it's you're going to run into to issues and i think that um there's the people who do it and do it well, one of the things that I think makes it look like it's done well is that it looks like it's easy to do. But I have tried to reiterate the fact that it honestly is not easy to do and that it does require uh, the thing that scientists have told us we're very bad at and you know it's been proven over and over again, but that you have to be a multitasker and that you have to kind of have your brain in five or six places at once. And so to do that, you need to alleviate some of that pressure by preparing. Um, a second little note 
is that, quote, no plan survives contact with the enemy. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, so enemy <laughs> the enemy is the, you know, the, the actual project, like in the moment when it's, it's taking place, it's time to do it. That is what I'm talking about when I talk about the enemy. It's not really the enemy, but you know what I mean. Um, you may plan, you may have everything figured out, but not only do I think it's important to have some backup plans in place and to, more importantly, leading up to whatever it is that you're going to do, test everything. But I think it also becomes a mantra of grace and forgiveness. No plan survives contact with the enemy. Inevitably, something is going to not go exactly as you expected it to go. And in the moment, you shouldn't let it take you out of what you're doing in, in a way that you, you know, you're, you're sort of beating yourself up. Oh, that's not going well. Don't let that keep you from, you know, completing the project, completing whatever it is you're working on. But then afterward, looking back, don't let that, you know, try not to let it get to you because again, no plan survives contact with the enemy. There's, <laughs> there's going to be stuff that goes wrong and that's okay. That's going to happen. That's just the state of things. And that's just how it works. And that's part of it. And when you can kind of accept that and go, but look, it's, it's, you know, it's okay. We're going to keep going. We're going to make this work. I think that's important. Um, and then something that a lot of us, I would argue, uh, many of you folks, my friends, uh, that are, uh, you know, in these creative and technological fields, um, are, you know, we, we all, I think struggle with this asking for help. Um, if you're able to ask for help, if you're able to not try to take it all on yourself, if you're, if you have a team or if you have um, a colleague or a, a friend, whomever, don't be afraid to ask for help, ask for guidance, ask for advice, ask for just a second look at things. Um, when it came to the uh, St. Jude D&D experience, uh, Stephen, I first talked to you about it, and then uh, St. Jude was incredibly helpful in helping me figure out what needed to be done. And then the team of players that I worked with, they all were there and saying, you know, whatever you need as far as this goes, this goes, that goes. Uh, and then the the community itself, whatever you need help with, it was really nice. And just don't be afraid to do that. Just ask for that help. And it doesn't mean that the project is less powerful or less impressive or, um, you know, not as, as awesome because you didn't do it alone. In fact, I think that it makes it richer. It makes it better that you were able to bring people together and do it together. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing that I'll say, um, and then we can kind of talk about these is don't forget that after you've completed the thing that you do take time to look back and see what you did and appreciate what you pulled off. And like, don't be afraid to sit with it. Think about all of the stuff that you did that led to that final project actually getting out there into the world and what was involved, even if that meant covering your body almost entirely with body paint, as I did <laughs> with the St. Jude experience. Um, you know, it. I still find from time to time in some random place, tiny bits of blue paint that I did not uh, wipe off after that whole thing. So it, those are little reminders of like, wow, we did that. And we we raised quite a bit of money in that um, short period of time playing Dungeons and Dragons online. And it's just, it's cool to to do that. And it's important to do that before you move on to the next thing and then the next thing and the next thing. 
Yeah, I, I think that's so true. And it's it, it's hard to do, I think, especially that last one when it is uh, a side project, right? Mm-hmm. When it's something that, yeah, I've got a day job, but I'm just, I'm doing this blog or I'm doing this YouTube series on the side, but but really taking time to to sort of bask in that accomplishment and then also to reflect on, you know, things that you've learned or things that you'd want to change for the next time. I know it's easy for me just to go from like one project to the next to the next. Yep. And that that step of rest in between them is is hard to come by, but it's something that I'm I'm aware of and I think it's really good advice. And just to follow up on the thing about planning, I feel like that is not just a precious maker uh thing. I think anybody <laughs> in the world that's out there, I mean, that's how as a trial lawyer, you get by. I mean, you. Uh, there's another great quote about planning. I think it's Eisenhower says, "The plans mean nothing, but planning is everything." And Ooh. that that's um, that's what happens when you get get out in the world and you're trying to do something. You make a plan, and then you know it's going to go a little sideways on you. But because you made the plan, you've got a contingency plan, or it just gives you enough knowledge around the topic to figure it out and don't freak out. You know, and just go with it. Right. That's all we do as humans. We figure it exactly. out as we go along. Go with the flow. Yeah. And figure it out as and everybody's doing it. Everybody's figuring it out as we go along. Absolutely. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Things, the award-winning to-do app. If you're a big Apple Shortcuts user, you're going to love the powerful integration provided by Things. Because this year the team adopted the new app intense framework. That added nine new actions that greatly extend what's possible. In fact, you can now completely automate your workflow with things on Mac, iPad, and iPhone. Just to give you an idea of what's possible, you can create full-blown projects with their headings and to-dos, edit existing data, duplicate a template project with just a tap, grab links to your items, and of course, you can pull data into things from other apps or send data out. The functionality is so impressive that the team over at Mac Stories named it the best new feature of 2023 in their end-of-year awards. And our good pal Federico said that Things Shortcut integration represents the best breed of user automation on Apple platforms. There are no apps as tightly integrated with shortcuts as Things at the moment. That's pretty high praise and well worth checking out. And of course, Things continues to be beautifully designed across all the platforms. It is a true, beautiful, but powerful application to manage your tasks. To learn more about Things integration with Apple Shortcuts and everything else Things has to offer, head on over to their website. They have a great gallery of shortcuts to show you what's possible. That's things.app. Go check them out and you can download a free trial for your Mac. Things is renowned for its fantastic design and the app packs a lot of power too. And the team has added loads of other great features over the years that you should really check out. Again, the website is things.app, and of course, it is linked in the show notes. Go learn more about the app's great features and download that free trial for your Mac. And of course, you can find it in the App Store. Just search for Things. Whatever you want to accomplish in life, Things can help you get there. Try Things today at things.app, and you won't regret it. Our thanks to Things for their support of the show and Relay FM. Micah, one thing, we've had you on the show a few times, but we haven't talked about kind of your productivity stack. And I'm always curious about that. You know, to me, the the big apps for that are your task manager, your calendar, your notes apps. Where, you know, what are the apps that are helping you get all this work done? So 
I love uh, this question as well um, because it is an opportunity for me to, uh, I don't know, <laughs> kind of reveal the the interesting <laughs> way that I go about doing things. I I look at other folks and I see these incredible uh, multi step systems and and all of this stuff that's involved, these, you know, a bunch of different apps and you, you hop into this one and you, you check this off and then you hop over here and you write some text and it's awesome. It's impressive. And I wish that my brain could do those things. Uh, for me, I do keep it pretty simple. Um, one of, when it comes to tasks, uh, I have two apps that I use do, uh, D U E. And then the reminders app that's built into Apple. It is rare that I use reminders. Um, reminders is for any kind of, well, it's, it's especially for location-based tasks. Um, when I need to be reminded that when I get home or when I get to this place or when I leave this location, uh, I, that's where I use reminders because that's the built-in functionality that reminders has. And then I will also use reminders um, when I need to share a task with someone else. Again, a, a rarity, but when that comes up, that's where I use reminders. Do is pretty much the place where I live when it comes to task management. And that is because do is, I think, a, a secret weapon, so to speak, for folks who do have ADHD. Um, because do will not let you forget to do something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it will bug you over and over and over again until you complete the task. And that is what I need because what'll happen is, you know, the, the reminder might come up at, uh, when it's supposed to. And when I was using an app before, like the reminders app, I would look at it and I'd go, Oh, I can't do that right now. I need to do something else. And then by the time it came time to do the thing, I will have forgotten about it. So when something needs to be done, I have some reminders that are daily, like medication reminders. Uh, but for example, um, overnight, I woke up in the middle of the night and I have this bad habit of sometimes picking up my phone and looking at it. And I did. And there was, I saw that there was a direct message. And so I tapped on the direct message and I read it and I said, oh, that's something I actually should reply to, but I'm not going to do it right now because it's the middle of the night. So I put a reminder in do that says, hey, you know, you've got this DM that you want to respond to. Another thing, the washer finished right before uh, we started recording. Didn't want to start the dryer while we're recording because it is in the hallway outside of my uh, office. And so I have a reminder that when we're done podcasting today, I need to run the dryer. I don't have um, sort of project-based check mark stuff, uh, like the tasks for that. I really live and die by my calendar when it comes to, uh, the events that I do. And when I need to, uh, do some sort of very task-based project sort of system, I go to my favorite thing, which is that on my desk, I have a stack of index cards and I have my lovely trusty fountain pen and the the project goes at the top of the index card and then line after line after line after line i put the tasks that i need to do and then i cross them off physically and the reason for that is because next to me i have a wall on which i can pin these tasks and 
the way that the uh, that my brain works in particular is, I guess I still have a little bit of um, uh, of of a lack of object permanence, and so it's more like uh, what you don't know can't hurt you. Mine's like what you don't see, you don't do, and so because they're there physically, every time I sit down, I'm reminded of them. I see them, and then I can complete them, and so that's why I like to have that physical thing. Whereas the phone maybe requires me to go into the app to remember to look. And I've never built that pathway. I've never uh, sort of built that habit of of checking that app over and over again. It's always the notifications coming to me. So I, yeah, I have a mixture of actual, true, physical paper for sort of project-based tasks and then do for every other kind of task that I need to do in a day. I don't think you're alone in having uh, project-based tasks managed in other places. I think that happens a lot, especially when you work on a team and maybe you've got some collaborative tools or for whatever reason. And uh, I think that's a, that's a point of intentionality. Like if you're listening, uh, what's your answer to that question? Do you manage projects and, and kind of like one-off tasks in the same way, or do you have different systems and, and thinking through it, I think it makes a lot of sense. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's always, you know, one of those things where you go, okay, I'm going to share this and then people are going to go, oh man, he's, he's this tech guy and he doesn't use the app. <laughs> I use note cards too. Don't worry about it. I, 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 to me, I call it the last mile. I put them on a note card at the end. At least I've been doing that for about a year now. and I think it's sticking. I still use the fancy apps, but I, I do think there's something to writing it down and, and having it on your desk. Yeah. Really works for me. Um, as far as calendars go, uh, fantastic how fantastic how fantastic how I would, if I could, I would be the Oprah of fantastic how I would give everybody a copy of fantastic how, and you could look <laughs> under your seat and there was the copy and it would just be wonderful. And I would be screaming with my hands above my head. Fantastic how, um, alas, I am not, um, I don't know, Jeff Bezos, so I can't afford to do that. And so I just am encouraging you all to use Fantastical. I basically, if it's not in my calendar, I'm not going to remember that it's it's happening. And so anytime, if it's a personal uh, thing, you know, my partner and I going to a show this evening, that goes in the calendar. If it's for work, that goes into the calendar. If it's for, you know, uh, Dungeons and Dragons that goes into the calendar. I even have different um like milestone things in my calendar. So if you know if I for example, if this hasn't happened in a long time, but I remember when um I had switched a medication and so I kept track of how long I had started taking the new medication to check symptoms, that kind of thing. Basically everything is in my calendar. I use almost every feature of Fantastical save for the openings feature. I don't send out a lot of um, of meeting request type things. Uh, those tend to be something that um, the team handles at work. And so I have not really had an opportunity to use openings. But I my favorite feature, uh, and it's kind of a silly thing in the long run, um, one of the, the sort of quirks about Zoom is that if you, in, in many apps, if you click on a Zoom link, it will open your browser, which will then ask if it can open Zoom, and then it will start the Zoom call. But Fantastical has integrated with Zoom in such a way that if the Zoom link is part of the event, 
then you can click the join button and it will automatically launch Zoom instead of having that interstitial of having Safari pop up. And so I, uh, for example, took the uh, link out of Notion, copied the link out of Notion, popped it into the event so that I could just click that join button and have it pop up. It's silly, but I like that it does that, that I don't have that extra step. But I think it's just the layout of Fantastical, the smart features that it has for typing out an event. So I can say, you know, lunch at uh, noon at a location with, and it will start to fill that out for me um, and create the event. And then I can kind of go in and edit it. That has been one of my favorite things. And it's, uh, it's widget on my Mac desktop is fantastic. The widgets on the iPhone are fantastic. The widgets on the iPad are fantastic. The complication on the Apple Watch is fan. I just, oh, I, I, I could go on. Fantastical, I think, is so, so good. And ever since I started using it, I don't even know how long ago now, I, I could not go back to just that uh, regular old calendar app. Yeah, I'm in the bag for them too. I I I just paid my renewal recently, but the uh, same the the scheduling thing I would say is for someone like me, I don't like the idea of opening my calendar to the world to say, oh, you can schedule on this page. Just pick a mm-hmm. time. I, I hate that idea. But there's they've got a different form of scheduling where you can just say, okay, here are three times. Send Stephen an email. And let him pick one, and that works often. And I can kind of control when the meeting happens. I, I actually like that for scheduling. But yeah, they, it's a nice app. Nice. Yeah. I Okay. So I actually, I didn't know about that specific feature. Um, so I'll have to find that. Yeah. Invitation. So create an appointment and say add invitation. And you can just like duplicate, like say, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, two o'clock. And then when it sends the invitation, they get an email that says, you know, do you want Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday at two o'clock? And then because you know, just the idea of saying, "Well, here's my calendar. Just pick a time." That's 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 nutso, you know. Yeah, I, I didn't like that either. So I I tend to avoid those kinds of services. So it's cool that there's one that does not do that. Um, awesome. Uh, as far as notes go, this is where I think um, I've had some people go, "What?" <laughs> as much as I can, I like to be. I like to use my Mac uh, more than any other device, even. I mean, I use my iPhone more because of what it does, but if I can, I will go sit at a Mac or pull out my MacBook Air and do stuff there. That's just, I, I like being, I like Mac OS. I like um, the the room that I have to sort of spread out and do things. And so I am a huge text edit user. When I first um, install a, you know, a new copy of Mac OS or I am, you know, I get a new Mac and I'm setting it up, uh, the first one of the first things I'll do is go into text edit and change the uh, preferences that are now called settings, unfortunately. And um, I will go in and make sure that the format is set to plain text and that wrap to page is turned off. And then I also turn off a few of the like, uh, automatically correct uh, text. And then from that point on, every single day on my Mac, I open up a text edit document. I hit command S and I give it the uh, a slug for the date. So it's today's, for example, is called 121923.txt, save. And so each day there's just a text edit page 
or a text edit document that sits in, you know, sits either uh, down in the dock or is open on the screen. And it is a place that is, it's, it's essentially like having a piece of paper on the desk that I write little notes on. Uh, there URLs end up in there, um, little bits of text that I need to move to something else end up in there. If there's, uh, if I'm, I'm trying to, I'm going to send a text to somebody, but I want to sort of figure out how I want to word it first. It, same thing with Slack. If I don't want it to look like I'm, you know, sending, starting to send a message and then I stop and I start to send the message again, I stop. I will use TextEdit as the place where all of my text goes. I know there are dozens of apps that can do all sorts of things, including, um, you know, even using like a clipboard manager or the, I mean, there's, there's so many different apps, drafts, all of these. I've tried them. And just for me, I always just go back to text edit. And so for years and years now, each day I've got a, uh, a date slug that has that. Now, this is me putting out a call to all of your wonderful, wonderful listeners out there. I have tried a number of different tools, both um, creating a script, uh, using something like um, uh, Keyboard Maestro, uh, Hazel, I cannot figure out a way that will automatically create a text file, a text edit file each day and save it with today's date slug. I have tried so many different methods and each one of them has failed me in some way. I've, I've consulted people. I can't figure out a way to just have that happen automatically so that when I open my Mac, there's a little text edit document waiting for me to use for that day. I've always had to create it myself. I even um, tried to do like an automatic script that that uh, you know started at a certain time, um, and I had my Mac like wake at 3 a.m. and run the script, and it didn't work for some reason. So yeah, if somebody could solve that for me out there, oh, I would. That'd be amazing. But yes, text edit is the place where I do that. I feel like that's a solvable problem. I feel like just thinking off the top of my head. I would have Keyboard Maestro duplicate a file and then save as and change the name. I didn't think about duplicating an already existing file. <laughs> That's the one thing I didn't think about doing. It was always trying to create a, a new file. Yeah. Ah, I'll have try to try that. that then. But I mean, you work with Rosemary Orchard. She's the alpha automator of the world. I mean, have you ever asked her about this? <laughs> I did ask her about this, and we tried a few things that didn't work, but we didn't try duplicating a file. So <laughs> that's, see, it, right. it takes just a different look at if, things. If, if it works, the next time we see each other, you have to buy me a cookie. Okay. Absolutely. I will Thanks. absolutely buy you a cookie. There you go. Do you keep these files around? Like, do you have like a Dropbox folder or something that's an archive of all these things, or are they ephemeral? I do. Um, so the month stays on my local drive and the backups go to my network attached storage automatically. Um, and then my network attached storage is, of course, backed up to a cloud backup. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, the month remains local. Everything else goes away. And it is mostly... See, this is the thing is I try not to put anything in there that I need necessarily to re-reference after a day. It's kind of just like what I need for that day goes into that text edit document um, so that it's not, oh, what am I forgetting? Because then that that goes somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do something very similar with uh, with field notes. Like I just have a daily log and, you know, some it's like a mix of 
a list of things I've gotten done or like maybe I'm reconciling a number of invoices and they don't add up. So I have like some simple math, like a little table I've drawn. It's like, it's just whatever. And I don't necessarily need to come back to them, but I want something kind of throughout the day to like, I kind of think about it like RAM for my day. Like it's just kind of over there. I can access it and then it gets stored away later. Oh my gosh, you've given me a new name for it. That's such a great way to think about it. It absolutely is RAM. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we have um, somebody who's occasionally a guest on Clockwise, uh, Heather Kelly, who writes for the Washington Post as a a tech editor there. And she one time sort of, um, it was like, with with some sort of shame, she was she was talking about her system of using text edit, and then then we had this moment of of me going, "Wait, you do that too?" It was great. <laughs> I was so happy there was somebody else out there. So yeah, I love it. It's RAM. It's absolutely RAM. <laughs> my my pal Chris Bailey has written four best selling books with text edit. You know what? That's yeah, awesome. But, and there's all these tools out there, and he like text edit, and you know what? <laughs> He's written four more best selling books than I have. You know so. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's too cool that's too cool but you know that that says something like it, there's a theme here because you you are not getting lost in the tools you're working on the results and it seems like you've very intentionally chosen tools that aren't fancy and whizzy but but still allow you to get the work done and i think that's important i think that's what it is david that that's absolutely what it is that um i i end up using these more basic tools uh that for me I mean, they're easy for me to just quickly interface with and then move to whatever it is that I'm trying to do. Yeah, I think that that is a preference that I I seem to have for sure. And, and Stephen and I have been talking about how I think there's a game afoot at Apple where these basic tools are not so basic anymore. Every year they get more power features. So yes, you're so right. And so that's why I keep going back to text edit because I know okay, the most you're doing is adding rich text here, and I turn that off, so <laughs> you can't mess with it. <laughs> Uh, I'll briefly mention IA Writer because that is the markdown editor that I use um, when I am writing a longer form document, which is rare, but on occasion I do, uh, particularly for D and D. If I because I, I also believe it or not, I uh, run a campaign that is not a podcast; is instead off air. What and is that like? What so <laughs> wild that that happens? You and don't so, record you know, all your got- conversations and put them on the internet. <laughs> surprisingly not all of them just most of them uh so i use ia writer as kind of a way to help me get the story in place and figure that out and then it's also of course a great way to uh for me to move between markdown and formatted text and just uh straight up plain text if i need to sort of do translations for that um i'm also very picky about the formatting of my recipes and so I use IA Writer to properly format a recipe how I want it before I import it into my recipe manager or before I print it out um, to have a physical copy of it. I, yeah, it's okay. Well, now you now you've summoned it. What's your recipe manager? My recipe manager is Paprika. Um, I, in fact, one of the reasons why I love it so much is because of its way of formatting recipes. Um, when it comes to printing them, because I am a person who likes to, here we go again with the physical thing. I like to have that physical copy of the recipe and I found it's, um, sort of tools and adjustments that you can make to the recipe to be great. It's importing works quite well. Um, 
but I just like, again, there are a couple of things that I like to change. So that's where I end up using IA writer, but yeah, uh, paprika has been the one that I've used for a long time. Rosemary's, um, introduced me to a couple of other options, uh, crouton being one of them, but I always end up going back to paprika. It feels like recipe managers are that one of those categories of apps where there's an abundance of riches. There's like a bunch of really interesting, uh, you know, apps with developers taking different takes on something and doing it really well. Yeah. You get to try a bunch of different kinds. It's yeah. They've all got different flavors. (laughs) Are you using IA writer on the iPhone and iPad as well? I know one of its features is that you can kind of sync your library of documents around, or is it just a Mac app for you? It is almost entirely a Mac app. Uh, There will be rare occasions where I need to just do a quick edit and my iPhone is what I have with me. But yeah, it's mostly a Mac app. I I have it on those devices and it works quite well. And back when I was using my iPad more often because I was doing, I was using it with iOS today, IA Writer was in the background. Oh, that's what I forgot. It's also where I format show notes for the shows that I do. Um, IA Writer has years of show notes now in it um, for, for everything that I do. So that is, that's actually its main purpose. So I'm surprised I had forgotten that. <laughs> This episode of MPU is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. With Squarespace, you can stand out with a beautiful website, engage with your audience, and sell anything, products, services, and even the content you create. Because Squarespace has everything you need all in one place. Maybe think about that old rickety website you have for your business or that website for your side project that doesn't really show off what you're doing. Or Squarespace, you can use their tools to bring those projects into the new era, the modern era. The Fluid Engine, which is Squarespace's next-generation website design system, allows you to customize every design detail with reimagined drag-and-drop technology for desktop and mobile. You can stretch your imagination with Fluid Engine, and it's built-in and ready to go on all new Squarespace sites. You can sell products in an online store, physical and digital products, and you can use flexible payment options. So your customers can, of course, use PayPal and Apple Pay, but you can also offer customers the option to buy now and pay later with Afterpay and Clearpay as well. I love building on Squarespace because all these tools are there and built in. I don't have to go around to a bunch of different services and tape things together myself. It is wonderful to have everything you need all in one place. So check out squarespace.com slash MPU for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash MPU and the code MPU to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's the code MPU when you decide to sign up to get 10% off your first purchase at squarespace.com slash MPU. Our thanks to Squarespace for their support of the show and Relay FM. All right, we promised it earlier. It's not an episode of MPU with Micah without HomeKit. I'm sorry that we've shoehorned you into this, but here we are. HomeKit, and I think the smart home in general, is kind of in this interesting place, right? On one hand, if you go look at the smart home accessories list on Apple's website, more stuff than ever, right? Lots mm-hmm. and lots of uh, of HomeKit access cameras, you know, lights, surge protectors, like all sorts of stuff now. I feel like the range is much better than it's ever been. But then you also have this uh, sort of uh, emerging 
a world of matter, which is in some ways based on HomeKit, I believe. But could you could you explain matter to us and maybe why this is important? Yeah. So basically the Zigbee Alliance, which rebranded as the Connectivity Standards Alliance, um, once and for all, I think they they talked to the right people in the right places and the right companies to say, you know how before we've said there should just be one sort of protocol, one standard that en- encompasses all smart home communication. Yeah. And you know how we've never done that? We've just created a bunch more protocols and standards and uh, some of them work and some of them don't. Yeah. Let's actually make that happen this time. And that is what matter is intended to be. Matter is, uh, it's both a connectivity standard and a protocol that allows for communication between different devices regardless of what platforms they are in with what platforms they're intended to be used. And so this was meant to be not only a way for new devices to interoperate, but in many cases for devices that already exist to interoperate. And so if you had a product that said uh, that it was going to work with ALEXA, Amazon's personal assistant, or one that worked with the Google Assistant and, and Google Home, that these devices would also work if you had HomePods in your home and wanted to control them over Siri. And so what they what they did was they looked at the kind of different communication methods and they said, let us figure out a way for the for IP, um, the sort of internet communication to be the backbone for all of these different methods that you would have kind of one or two devices in your home that served as the gateway uh, that when a communication came in, it could hit that and then it could talk to the different devices on your network, regardless of, of, you know, what they were intended to be used uh, with. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's sort of a universal translator um, that, and, and, uh, almost like a webbing, uh, that is meant to let everything stick to one another and work together and talk together. And we've had this, you know, in, in the past, it's more been, instead of trying to translate, it's more been trying to get the companies to all use one language, right? This is saying, okay, we're not going to get them to all use one language, but we can at least get them to all use two or three modes of of sending the language. I know that gets a little murky, but it's like you talk on the phone, you send a text, and you uh, send mail. We can at least get them to all agree to use that, even if they all are writing them, speaking them, or sending them in different languages. That's fine. But if they're all using that same means of, of, of doing it, then I can be the person that is uh, sort of overseeing all of that, right? I the, the matter wants to oversee all of that and help send that mail to where it needs to go, translate it properly, mm-hmm. and then send the mail in the, in the right language. Yeah, I mean, the idea is so promising, right? It was, mm-hmm. it was so strange that when the smart home stuff first appeared, you were really buying things based on what assistant you were going to use, right? I mean, yep. It's such a, in hindsight, and we're still there a little bit, but in hindsight, such a strange way that the market developed, basically around 
Apple's assistant, Google's assistant, and Amazon's assistant. And I remember because I started with the in the Amazon ecosystem, was like, okay, because for a long time that was where the Amazon most options the most. were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like there's not even HomeKit versions of this, but there's four different versions that work with Amazon, right? And you had to look when you bought something, like, okay, this will work with this system. And then over time, you know, those light switches or those smart plugs, they okay, it'll work with Amazon and Apple or Google and Apple or whatever. And Matter kind of promises to to democratize all that, right? Everything's gonna work with everything. And yeah. The promise is so good. And like I would love to be able to mix and match more. There's this great piece that actually got published, I think today or yesterday in The Verge, uh, about kind of where matter is in 2023. And as you may imagine, you've got a bunch of companies that really are competitors in a lot of ways, trying to get them all pointed in the same direction and working on the on a same shared platform has been uh, a little bit tougher than maybe some of us would have hoped. Yeah, and I think that that's because once they got down into the weeds, they realized that it requires a lot more of the companies playing ball with one another than you would have expected. That, you know, when you've got, (laughs) surprise, when you've got so many different voices all trying to decide on what is going to be the final thing or what's not, you're going to run into issues where there are disagreements, which are going to lead to delays. And you've got different companies with different ideas for what security should be involved, which leads to different delays. I mean, there's so much there that plays a role in how exactly matter looks in the end. And that does result in these this holdback on, on the next you know go of things. I've seen a lot of... Um, of, of smart home products that are now starting to talk about matter and make that kind of, Oh, and this is a, this is a matter device. But my experience has been that it is still uh very, unfortunately it's more pie in the sky, right? It, it still feels like something that is not uh, promising just yet. And we had been hearing that, for quite a while now that, oh, it's coming. Oh, it's coming. Oh, it's coming. And they kept delaying it. Now, you know, that the the matter uh, standard is published and it is available and they are allegedly working on it. But there's so much that goes into it that I think no one expected, no one being the companies involved expected, that unfortunately, there's still this large delay on what this looks like. And part of that is, when you let so many different objects sort of the the way that that matter works is you kind of have to have at least one device on the network that can serve as as i mentioned kind of the universal translator and so with that if so many different companies can all say okay my device can be that and you're trying to do this thing where you don't make the consumer have to do too much thinking, <laughs> that the consumer doesn't have to be super involved with it, then you run into an issue where everything's kind of trying to run the show and who actually is in charge of the show and uh, is this properly communicating with this and and is it okay that this doesn't necessarily have uh, the security standard up to this level? I mean, there's just so much complexity 
And it is resulting in a lot of, of issues. And I've even had issues. There are a couple of devices that when I upgraded them with the Matter-enabled firmware, since that day, I have quite literally not been able to use them anymore. They do not connect anymore. They do not work anymore. I cannot uh, reset them to factory settings because that's still the factory settings. It's still with matter turned on and something somewhere has held on to, you know, the, the matter um, sort of the, the blessing of the system mm. whenever it kind of first connects. So credentials is the word I was looking for, has held on to the old matter credentials. So they just literally cannot talk to my network at all. Yes. And that was a flub. <laughs> Absolutely. Like that should not have happened. And I worry about that for not necessarily for the devices that are going to be coming out that have matter kind of on day one, but for the folks who've been hearing, you know, oh, this device that you already have, it's going to get an update and it's going to support matter. And that's a great thing. I don't know that it's a great thing yet. And I don't know when we're going to see the truly great thing, but I'm hoping you know, that's, I, I, we kind of, um, in the, in the notes, we're kind of talking about what, what we can expect and will it matter at some point. And I said, and I do feel this way that I do have faith that one day it will work, but I think that's mostly because I'm a fool. Um, <laughs> I just want it to work. I, I really would like this to be the case. Um, but I don't know. I used to think it was anecdotally, um, that folks weren't too jazzed about the smart home. Mm -hmm. But it's feeling less like an anecdote and more like something that is a, a, a true trend that I don't see or hear about people being super excited about the, the smart home. But I don't know. I'm curious, you know, your, your experience for the people who aren't us, the people who aren't super into tech and who are enthusiasts about it. Yeah. I, I haven't dabbled much in the matter world. I mean, I, like I said, I had started with a bunch of stuff that worked with Amazon and over the years I've basically moved everything over to HomeKit. Like I don't even have an Amazon speaker tube anywhere in the house anymore. Just a bunch of HomePod minis running around and it, that's been fine. So I haven't really felt the push to like make or choose things that are more interoperable because I haven't, I haven't come across a situation where I couldn't find something that just worked with HomeKit to solve a problem that I had, right? Now, that doesn't mean I don't have a bunch of like Ethernet bridges plugged into my network, you know, some wacky stuff, but I haven't really been in a situation in a long time where I needed to like, oh, I want this thing over here, but it doesn't work with HomeKit. Really, the, the, the closest example I've had is a couple of Ring cameras, and I was using Home Assistant for that, but then my Home Assistant blew up and I haven't rebuilt it and it's been mostly fine. Like the ring stuff is just in the ring app. And I, I guess some of that is like the, um, just kind of knowing what you're getting into and like making some decisions on the front end about the world you want to live in and, and knowing that, yeah, down the road, these walls may come down a little bit, but I think we're still kind of in that era I was talking about before where you're still kind of basically choosing a team when you yep. start and, the edges are softening, but that's still kind of in play. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You you still have to choose a team, and um, I don't I don't see that changing. Maybe by the end of this coming year, uh, maybe uh, that's that's as much of a prediction I'll give. 
uh, that we'll see some real softening or at least, you know, teams shaking hands, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't feel good about it. So, yeah. Do you think that like, I, cause I feel like from the outside, like the initial land grab was that Apple, you know, Google, Amazon, they all wanted to be the source for this stuff. And they found out they, none of them alone was going to be able to do it. Do you think they've accepted that at this point? I mean, is that the reason why for the That's- matter hold up? That's a good question. I think so. I one thing about it is they are all they are all big companies, and I am not um, a fool enough to believe that any of them. Maybe Amazon, but save except for Amazon, I'm not a fool to believe that the rest of the companies care that much about this specific field. That it's you know something that they're trying to be the very best, like no one ever was in. I think that um, they wanted to, so for Apple, you know, they were very much, it's all part of the the branding of the company and how they uh, do so well with selling the devices. It's like, I care for, the, you know, the company says it, it cares about the individual user and their experience, and it cares about the individual user's privacy and security. And so HomeKit in its initial makeup was so locked down that it resulted in there not being many devices. Amazon, because you know the Echo was, at least early on, such a huge part of what the company was trying to do in getting into your home and letting you order devices and be encouraged, or not order devices, but order products and be encouraged to order products through this speaker and you know have Amazon be part of your everyday maybe more so they did want to be in charge of things and and run things and that could play a role. But as far as them sort of now realizing that it's, it's better if they all play together, I don't really feel like the big companies, it's kind of wild to me, I guess, that the big companies care at all about playing together because it's really the little companies. It's the companies that are making the light bulbs that are making the, um, the security cameras, the door locks, the garage door openers, those smaller companies are the ones that benefit from everything playing together. Whereas those bigger companies are like, yeah, we want you to buy the Google Home to work with, look at all these 15, 20, 25 devices that only work with the Google Home or the Google Nest or whatever it's called these days. Google changes its names all the time. So yeah, that's that's a really good question because why would they even care even now and not be more motivated to just continue to lock everybody else out. Hmm. Something to ponder. All right. I don't want to leave the topic without one piece of advice. Somebody at home wants to get started. Give us uh, one piece of advice to get started with HomeKit. Now that we've told everybody how concerned we are about it. This remains my one piece of advice. Um, I wrote an iMore article on this way back in the day. Buy a smart plug as your first home uh, device. And the reason why is because anything in your home that you already have that just plugs into the wall can suddenly become, quote unquote, smart. So you can take that lamp or that fan or that coffee pot or whatever else it happens to be and see what it's like to make it smart. And then once you've decided, okay, this is something that actually makes sense for me, then you start to bridge out from there. But always be mindful of the fact that you may be buying into what the smart home has to offer. But if you live with other people, they kind of need to buy into it too. 
other otherwise it's going to be a struggle. <laughs> and so just uh, make sure you're communicating with everybody else about what you're planning to do. So yes, buy a smart plug. And if there are others who live in your home, let them know what you are doing and how to use the thing and what it does so that everybody is aware and everybody remains happy and it's all kumbaya. Micah, we like to close these uh, episodes talking about some favorite apps and services that maybe didn't make the list. Uh, we already did talk about one. Pap- we we spoiled the paprika one. Uh, but you have some other really interesting utilities on here. What you got for us? Yeah, so one of my favorite ones to talk about, and it's not one that I end up getting to to talk about too often. It's called a notable. Um, it's like annotate and then able mashed up as a portmanteau. And it is an app that is for annotating uh, screenshots. Again, it's one of those categories that has so many different options, but a notable has these very delightful little twists to it that make it so good. One of those is it knows that you are using your finger to make small adjustments on the screen. And so when you tap and hold with your finger as you make small adjustments to, say, change where an arrow is pointing or uh, show something zoomed in, it puts a little um, sort of circle preview above your fingertip to let you see precisely where you're moving the point that you're trying to move. It has fantastic um, loops, which that's L-O-U-P-E. That's uh, for folks who have, you've certainly seen these. It's where there's sort of a circle that is zoomed in on a part of uh, an image or a screenshot. Um, And then you can do something as far as to change it from a bullet to an arrow um, and everything in between. There are options for like the stroke that surrounds the um, little annotation that you make. There is a uh, text highlighting option that actually recognizes text. So whenever you move your finger across, it will perfectly highlight the text itself. Um, It has options for redaction that are all different kinds, including just, you know, like a straight up black bar, but also uh, hexagonal blur and tiling. It has blurring. It lets you add text itself. I mean, it is a multi-purpose annotation tool. And I absolutely adore it. You can pay $9.99. It's free to download. It's $9.99 to uh, unlock all of the tools, or you can uh, buy them piecemeal for $1.99. I use this all the time. Um, It works from the share sheet as well as, uh, as an app on its own. And I mean, it's, there, it's just these tiny little things that it does that go, that make you go, Yes, this is exactly what I would want if I wanted an annotation tool. And so, yeah, if you're doing any sort of tech support with a family, with family members or friends or whomever, or even if you just, I don't know, if you want to smugly <laughs> point out something that somebody missed on a screen, then you can use it for that too. Uh, it's it's just great. It's it's great. It's uh, a notable in the App Store. Um, The other app that I'll mention, this is available on the Mac, on your iPhone, or on your iPad. It's called MakePass. And this is for folks who want to make more use of their Apple wallets. With MakePass, you can turn pretty much anything into an Apple wallet pass. So it's really cool. Isn't it so cool? It's so cool. It's got uh, now, these days, it's got AI tools built in. So you can, for example, take a photograph of 
um, maybe you've got a loyalty card for your favorite store and you can kind of let it uh, process it through AI and it'll automatically generate a pass for you that's got the code at the bottom or the, the scan at the bottom and then an image. And I've used this for all sorts of things. For loyalty cards, um, I've used it for um, uh, tickets. I mean, whatever I needed to, just turning it into this nice pass. And what I love is that I can use it on the Mac and then automatically share it to my Apple wallet. It'll show up on my iPhone. Um, it's even got all of the stuff that's built into um, Apple's wallet pass system, meaning that you can set like expiration dates for things. You can set locations so that when you show up at a specific location, that is when the pass will automatically be suggested to you. So just like the passes that you've added from different apps, um, it works that same way. And instead, you just get to make your own. I think everybody should be using this thing. It's so cool. Um, and I think uh, well well made, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the last one I'm going to mention, I found this app, and I think that it, it's, it's just delightful. So um, if you're looking for a way to do what amounts to AirDrop across iOS, Android, macOS, Windows, or Linux, <laughs> yes, all of those platforms, you should check out LandDrop. This came up because I have a Windows uh, machine that I use very rarely um, because I do get questions about Windows stuff. And so I wanted a way to be able to airdrop different files that I had created there to my iPhone. And Microsoft has um, a tool on Windows that kind of lets you share your iPhone with your uh, Windows machine. And then there's also this sort of Bluetooth sharing feature that's built into Windows. It's all clunky and gross and bad. <laughs> Landrop is none of those things. Landrop is so easy where you've just got this little this little target and you drop a file there. And as long as you and it are on the same local area network, boom, the file is transferred. Uh, it works It works how you would expect it to. It works without you needing to worry about it, without needing to think about it, without any of that. And as long as you have a connection between the two devices, you know, on your local area network, then you can use it. It also is, uh, it's open source and the um, the transfer is, uh, automatically cryptographically sealed. So you don't have to worry about, you know, that file, uh, being sort of intercepted or something. And then suddenly your, your file that you dropped is, is shared over. It's just great. Um, and it's free, uh, at landdrop.app is, is where you get it for the different devices. So, yeah, I think, uh, that is one where someone always ends up asking me, Hey, um, I have a, a Windows machine and I need to move something to my iPhone or vice versa, mm -hmm. or maybe even a Linux machine and you need to move it to your iPhone. LandDrop is the one to do that. Very cool. Yeah. I, I was not familiar with LandDrop. I was familiar with the others and these are some, these are some great choices. Thanks. As always, Micah brings the bangers. <laughs> we are the Mac power users. You can find us at relay.fm slash MPU. Micah, where should folks go to, to check out all your stuff. Yeah, if you head to chihuahua.coffee, that's C-H-I-H-U-A-H-U-A.coffee. I do spell it out because I know folks have had problems spelling chihuahua, fair. Um, that has links to 
many of the places I exist online. Uh, please do check out Twit and um, consider becoming a member of Club Twit because we just moved iOS today into the club. And I'd love to continue to do that show with Rosemary Orchard. And so the way that we get to keep doing it is if uh, you, you check that out and uh, consider joining the club. All right. Thanks to our sponsors, 1Password Things and Squarespace. And we'll see you next time.